In the 1970s, a future top-notch podcasting team was born, and then raised on military bases because their dads were in the Air Force. These Gen Xers eventually grew up and were unleashed upon the world. Today, looking forward to retirement, they survive by dishing out their opinions. If you have questions that need answers and an open mind, if you can spare 60 minutes a week, and if you have internet access, maybe you can listen to Kenyatta and Jack Save the World. Are you not entertained? Is this not why you are here? It better be, because that's what we're here to do, is entertain you and inform you and educate you, because that's all part of the job, and we love it. I'm Kenyatta. He's Jack. We're here to save the world. Jack, how's it going? It's going swimmingly, as they say in England. I'm fair to Midland, as they say in the South. So. Yes. <laughs> I mean... It's fantastic. I mean, it would have to be. We're both still here. We're good. Yeah. Our listening friends are good because they're here with us. So, yeah. Yeah. Oh, and no. I want to give a shout out to you since tomorrow is your big day with your new position within the company that you've worked for, but it's still a new position that you wanted. And so congratulations. And yeah. Yes. Thank you. Um, I'm excited. I'm excited for new things. I, I, the older I get, the more I appreciate new things. So I'm excited for new things. So thank you much. much You're welcome. Um, before we go any further, though, um, I wanted to share with our listening friends um, last month's episode on Zora Neale Hurston got a recognition and a like on, Inst- on our Instagram page from the Zora Neale Hurston Trust Instagram page. And our little mini profile at the very end of the month of Shirley Chisholm got a like and a thank you from the Shirley Chisholm Institute Instagram page. So that's good stuff. I'm really thrilled about this. Yes, I am too. That's nice. It means we're highlighting the correct people. Correct. <laughs> Indeed. And I, I, I like making sure that people know who all these folks are. So we shall continue the mission. That we should. That we should. Just all we can do is just one step forward Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. at a time. Absolutely. Absolutely. Oh, boy. So chugging right along like Thomas the happy engine. I don't know. What is it Tank engine. Thomas the tank engine. (laughs) Chugging right along. (laughs) Yep. Oh. We're going to um, we're going to Watutsi right into our WTFs, and there's so much to pick from. Is that I picked two? I couldn't help it. I mean, yeah. So we're going to do a slightly different WTF today, listening friends. Slightly different because we have three. So Kenyatta, I'm throwing it to you. Let's let's WTF this bad boy. And I should preface this by saying these these two WTFs are somewhat related to each other and related to the WTFs I've had for the last two weeks, because apparently something's in the water. First up, Dilbert cartoonist Scott Adams 
went ahead and showed his whole ass on the social medias last week. Um, apparently, he has had a history, according to his peers in the industry, he's had a history of saying uh, problematic things. But the latest problematic thing that he said was he advised his fellow white Americans that the best thing they can do is to stay away from Black Americans. Because Black Americans, collectively as a group, is a hate group. And white people need to get the hell away from them, uh, uh, them meaning us. Um, he went on to then say he's tired of going out of his way to help black Americans and he quits. And those are like the highlights. I would recommend going to look up his little pitiful little blurbing online, but I can't, I can't in good faith recommend it. I can only give you the highlights. Um, needless to say, he promptly got dragged and uh, many newspapers, publishers dropped his Dilbert comic strip from their publications. Good. Here's the other part. This is not a new thing. We have seen people like this. And frankly, I forgot Dilbert was a comic strip. I stopped getting the paper years ago and I forgot it was still being published. Uh. Right. But <laughs> even, even with this, it's just a matter of time before someone reaches out a helping hand to him. If they haven't already very quietly behind the scenes. Oh, yeah, I'm I'm sure that somebody's going to some right wing media. He probably now has a commentating job on OAN or Newsmax. Well, apparently the video he made was for I don't know if it was his podcast or something that he does on the regular. But yeah, now he's claiming that because, you know, his work is getting dropped from so many newspapers and such. You know, of course, he's making himself out to be a victim that he's been, quote unquote, canceled. Right. First of all, the cancel crowd doesn't want you. I'll tell you that right now. And just an example of his problematic history, as I'm reading in this NPR article, he had inaccurately described people who are not vaccinated, who were not vaccinated against COVID as the real, quote, winners of the pandemic. He also questioned the accuracy of the Holocaust death toll. And that he had lost multiple job opportunities for, quote, being white. So reckon with that. And <laughs> it's just all swimming in my head. First of all, I guess that means I'm completely devastated by this. Mm -hmm. Him and I are not going to be able to be friends oh. because I have black friends. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And if you were to find out who my podcasting partner was, mm. that might really be problematic for him and his viewpoints of me. Uh, so, mm, okay, okay, okay. Darn it! I'm, I'm, I'm gonna have to go and try some nearest green whiskey, to drink, <laughs> drink myself out of this, uh, out of this sorrow that I'm, I'm currently undergoing. Yeah, yeah, and to. Doesn't surprise me he's an anti-vaxxer or an anti-Semite. That just was stunning to me. <laughs> Frankly, I'm not surprised that he said or he has said those things and then said this most recent thing, because all those things pretty much go hand in hand in hand. Yeah. I think, I think the only thing that kind of surprised me was that he's still around. <laughs> Same thing with Ben Stein. Right. You're still here. You still do something. And, and for him to say he's tired of helping black people, 
I'm speaking on behalf of Black people when I ask, what have you done for us? Or to paraphrase Janet Jackson, what have you done for me lately? I haven't seen an email or a memo letting us know of the great things that Scott Adams has done for the Black community. I miss that. Well, he was about to start a charity that was going to send out compilation books of all of the Dilbert strips, and he was going to send them to uh, members of the Black community. Mm. But to help them understand what it's like to work in an office environment, because that's completely the kind of racist thought that he would have. <laughs> right? <laughs> They're not used to working in offices. <gasps> yeah, that, that tracks. I'm, I'm fairly sure. I'm fairly sure he's probably thought about that. And I don't think it's unfair to make that assumption. <laughs> yeah. I don't think I, it's unfair at all. So there. I, <laughs> I said that completely sarcastically, but mm. if he were to help, that would probably be it. Mm. Uh. So. Yeah. Well, before we move on, I just want to say once again, yeah. people need to understand there's a difference between cancel culture and consequence culture. Yeah. Yeah. This is called accountability, son. <laughs> yeah. Put some, so anyway. cream, put some whipped cream on it and choke. Uh, yes. What is your WTF? <laughs> hey, <laughs> strangely enough, this tracks with what I talked about on my WTF last week. Mm. <laughs> According to the new reporting from CNN Business, hashtag boycott Hershey's spreads on Twitter over Woman's Day campaign. Calls to boycott Hershey are spreading on Twitter in response to the chocolate company's International Women's Day Canadian campaign, which includes a trans woman. There you go. I mean, do I need to keep reading? I think we know where the rest of that's going, right? <laughs> oh, let's just say I don't know. Please can continue on as long as it doesn't make you scream. Okay. Faye Johnstone, a queer, trans, and feminist activist, posted about being included in the her for she campaign in a series of tweets on Wednesday. And it meant it means a lot to be included as a young ish trans woman. John Stone wrote, I grew up with a few trans with few trans role models. Many young trans folks haven't met a trans adult. I hope this campaign shows trans girls that they can dream big and change the world too. The posts were met with praise and support, but also anger at Hershey's. Much of which included anti-trans rhetoric. Of course it did. So they're doing that, the normal stuff. So my question is on all of these states that have now passing all these anti-trans bills and, you know, wanting to ban everything under the sun, are they going to try to ban Hershey's now in those states? I mean, DeSantis already tried to ban Disney. Mm -hmm. So... And and that's a legitimate question. Is there going to be Hershey's can't be sold in the state? Because if you want to cause an outrage that will be a nonpartisan outrage, take chocolate. Try, try to ban chocolate. Uh-huh. <laughs> Especially since Hershey's owns Reese's. Oh, well, wait a minute. Oh, wait. Oh, you said the magic word. Oh, hell no. Mm -hmm. Matter of fact, I'll go down there and act like I live there just to be able to make a stink. How dare you? Yeah. Marjorie Taylor Greene wants her uh, Civil War. Well, ban <laughs> chocolate. She's going to get it. 
Oh my gosh. I, I want her to have nothing. I want her to have all the nothing that there is to be had. That's it. That's it. Yep. But oh, I know it's not much. And I know that it seems like sometimes this stuff just gets talked about and talked about and talked about and talked about, but they no, keep it, doing stuff that makes you talk about it, talk about it, talk about it, talk about it. No, it is much. I mean, every it's it's like death by a thousand cuts at this point. Yeah. I mean, you would think that there was like, I don't know, just like tens of millions of trans people like coming in a wave, like in the World War Z where all the zombies yeah. were climbing up the wall. Wall in Israel, yeah. <laughs> you would think that that's what trans people were doing. And it's like literally less than like, like less than 5% of 1% of people. It's a significantly small number. And that's, that's, that's people who actually self-identify. Yeah. And that that number has has I'm not going to say it, it's remained constant because that that number has necessarily not been tracked for an especially long time. But yeah, chances are good that it's not going to it's not all of a sudden in the next 50 years going to swell up to 22 percent. Right. It's just, it's just facts. This Even if not- everyone that feels that way were to come out and identify that way, the number would still probably be less than two percent of the population. That's what I'm saying. So it's it's and when when people get accused of being homophobic and they they come back with, well, I'm not scared. You are. You are. It doesn't matter how you formulate your rebuttal. I don't I don't need to be forced to accept anything I don't agree with. And we talked about this before. It doesn't matter whether or not you agree. Yeah. Your your agreeance doesn't make their existence viable. So I'm going to need all that self-entitlement to get shoved right back up their butts because i'm tired of hearing that part yeah i don't agree with people that eat mayonnaise how about that but i'm not going around trying to stop people from eating mayonnaise like i'm going by and you got that good chicken sandwich i just slapped it out of your hand because you had the nerve to have mayonnaise and not mustard or whatever yeah if it's not bothering you let it be yeah. It has nothing to do with the people that are making the most stink it has nothing it has nothing to do with them and yet, for some reason, they feel the need to make as much noise as possible to force or threaten or cajole or try to bend people to their will. Why? Right. Yeah. And then you go and mess with chocolate. Yeah. I dare you. I dare them. Let, it, let me put them on notice right here and right now on the evening that we are recording, March the 2nd, 2023. I wish they would. That would be the first time in history, maybe, that some of these people got recalled. Election, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. All the other crappy shit they the real crappy shit they've done doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. But they banned chocolate, and all of a sudden, you want to unify Democrats and Republicans. It's on. It's on. If this is an if this is a nonpartisan issue, I don't know what it is. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know we're laughing about it, but it is just mm. another sort of serious thing in this unending culture war that just seems to be going on when really it's a you need to mind your fucking business war it really is there's no there's no there's no other way to describe it the world would be and maybe that's maybe that should be another you know temple of our overall philosophy here at save the world have those conversations but also mind your business care about other people but mind your business right i'll tell you what yeah And for me, the only reason that I would say maybe starting 
uh, on hormones early is a bad thing is because when you do have the surgeries, um, they do, um, especially if you go from like male to female, they do use your junk to create the female parts. And if you haven't developed to a certain point, you can have female parts that aren't quite right. At a certain, I don't know if I'm phrasing that right. Well, um, to, to clarify, no reputable doctor but, would operate on somebody right. after they had gone through puberty. Right. But it's the hormone blockers of like the testosterone that can have an effect on that. And I don't even really know enough about it because I know that there was some someone where that was like an issue with. And I would, I would hate for somebody to go through all of the surgery to be who they need to be but then have the rest of their life where something isn't quite right. Mm. And that's, that's the only reason in my case, I want the person to go through everything and then be their ideal version of what of themselves that they need to be. Right. And, and, and if they, if they're, if they get in touch and they're able to network with the right kinds of doctors and therapists and such, because that's a, that's a years long process. If it's done like it's supposed to be, that's a years long process. And it starts with someone sitting down, someone qualifies yep. sitting down and exploring these things with them first. Yep. And then you make the decision to continue to move on. So if they've got the right people in their corner and, and do it right, hopefully they don't run into those issues. But I see what you're saying. Right. Yeah. And once again, I just, I want somebody because that is a huge thing to go through. Yeah. Just all the surgeries and everything. And I just, I would feel really bad if somebody wasn't able to be like the 100% ideal version of themselves Mm -hmm. because they started hormone blockers a little too early. And this is, I guess this is where, you know, you can, we can speak about, you know, almost everybody has some kind of privilege when compared and contrasted to someone else. So for those who identify as uh, cis hetero, that's our privilege. The fact that we've never had to necessarily make a conscious decision about who we were and who we were attracted to. We just knew. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's a, that's a privilege not to, not to be able not to struggle with those kinds of feelings. And I can't imagine, like you were saying, I can't imagine having to go through that. Right. Yeah. And, and then have literally have people pop up every other day screaming about how your existence isn't possible or some such bullshit. Yeah, I could go on, but I won't. Anyway, yeah, I just want I want people to be happy with who they are, and I just it would be a shame if you had one thing that held you back, and I don't want that. Yeah. <laughs> so. Yeah. True. Anyway, moving on to your WTF 2.0, and as I mentioned, this is related to the first one, and tangentially related to last week and the week before. And I just call this series, if you want to call these WTFs of mine a series for the last few weeks, the white man's burden. Um, it is a burden, Kenyatta, let me tell you. I mean, we carry the weight of the world on our shoulders. Some of your fellow brethren would like others to think that, such as this fellow right here, Michael Ray Newman, a former student at the Howard University School of Law. And just for context sake, Howard University is the first and oldest HBCU, historically black college slash university, located in DC. This fella, Michael Ray Newman, was admitted to the University um, School of Law in fall 2020 
got himself a little scholarship. And I, I, I I'm sorry. Let me back up. I don't know if it should, if it goes without saying, but I'll clarify. This fella is is white. So started law school in the fall of 2020. He had, had a scholarship and was kicked out about two years later hmm. due to a series of events that um, his fellow students pretty much chalked up to harassment. It started out sometime in 2020 when Newman made some comments on a professor's forum page. And I guess that's like, a, I guess, an online, uh, mm-hmm. online area where the students can talk about debates and discussions. And he had, uh, he had started the discussion in the forum after he had placed his opinion in a previous group me chat. I guess that's their version of chatting or group text or whatever. Right. About disagreeing with the black community, saying, quote, they believe government solves problems countering his belief that he saw it only as causing problems. Other examples of his troubling behavior that he cited or he used the death of a fellow law students to further his views on COVID-19 and the vaccines and other various things over the course of a few years, which, which finally got him kicked out in 2022. Okay. He has now filed a lawsuit against the school of law saying that he's been discriminated against. Mm. You know, Kenyatta, you just don't understand what it's like. Mm-hmm. You know, and it takes brave souls like that man to bring the horrible thing of discrimination against the white man to light. <laughs> Let me tell you what your fellow white man also did. <laughs> this this was the big deal, the final straw. After after having done all these other little microaggressions, I guess you'd call them. It may not even be so micro. He apologizes. And then someone in early 2021 found a 2020 tweet from his private Twitter account where he had posted a picture of the emancipated slave Gordon also nicknamed Whipped Peter. And I don't know for I don't know if you're familiar with the picture, but it's a black and white picture of a slave sitting down and across his back you see the keyword scarring from right. whips. Very famous picture. And a matter of fact, my best friend Will Smith just did a movie about that that released like back in December called Emancipation. Not too bad. If you're interested Check it but, out. It's on Apple. Are you talking about Will Slappy Smith? I don't know that man. I'm talking about Will <laughs> Smith. <laughs> but this is the trick. The kid posts this picture and then the caption that he posts with it says, but we don't know what he did before the picture was taken. He um, claimed, mm, let me finish. He claimed he did that to criticize Every instance where we've seen a depiction of police brutality and people always counter back with what happened before this was recorded. So he claims that's where he was going with that. So that was pretty much the straw that had people like, nah, nah, dog, nah, nah. And students were like, nah, we're not doing this. They went um, they went to meet with the dean of the law school. We're not doing this. We're not going to do it. Yeah. So the dean suggested that Newman transfer and let him know, and the dean let him know that 
students felt like he was racially harassing them, which is accurate. And the thing of it is, is that he, from the way I see it and the details that I've got here, and this is a NBC News article that I'm going off of for the, the most updated, is that I don't know if he caught himself trying to engage people in conversations or if he was just, he got to the school and realized that being surrounded by all these black people made him nervous. He actually did say he equated himself to being as being a white student at a predominantly black college to a black student being at a predominantly white college. He felt like those positions were equal. So he basically tried to turn it on its head and say, I'm trying to do these things to gender conversation when really he was really just antagonizing his fellow students and they had had enough. And now he's suing the university saying that he's been discriminated against. Right. Because he's a white guy at a black school. Well, I know of a place where he could go, where he can hold those viewpoints. He probably won't be harassing any of the fellow students and he won't feel out of place being, you know, surrounded by by black people in that place is bob jones university correct i i feel like he would fit in very well at that university a lot of similar views i but kenyetta has an upset cat in the background folks indeed and I'm, i'm gonna i'm gonna handle that shortly i'll close this out by saying and hopefully hopefully this will be the last installment in this series, because I don't, I don't want to talk about it ever again. But I have a feeling it, it won't be. I'm just, I, I, I suppose I'm just kind of tired of seeing this continue to happen, where you've got somebody who, instead of being accountable for themselves and what they've said and done, when they're called to the carpet about it, so to speak, they want to flip it on its head and say, "Oh my gosh, you're attacking me!" Right. When that's the very thing that they were doing and have been accused of doing. And it's like, it's a common theme here. At what particular point do you think before you speak? And if you speak without thinking, how long does it have to go before you say, I'm sorry, I did said that thing. And then you do your best to not do it again. It doesn't, it doesn't seem to click. It doesn't seem to click for these people. No, it doesn't. It doesn't. It does not. So. But, yeah. Well, um, with that, we're going to transition into the the meat of this episode. But we're, we're doing something because it is award seasons, folks. So, Kenyatta is going to talk about some awards. Now, we are not talking about America's Best Plumber <laughs> or America's Best Electrician, which I'm not saying there should not be awards for that. I think there are somewhere. Somebody's doing but something. We are we are talking about getting a statue in tuxedos and fancy ball gowns. Yes. So listening friends, I'm going to assume correctly that you've been with us since the beginning of our journey. So you know that we tend to focus on a small selection of things that fall fall under certain umbrellas. So every every now and then we talk about some history. Sometimes we talk about some current events. Sometimes it's politics. 
And a lot of times it's a little dash of pop culture where today we've got history, current events, and pop culture all in one. We're going to go into the Academy Awards, a little history on its creation, a um, little pop culture, tidbits, facts, trivia, and a look at their efforts in the past few years to more widely diversify and whether or not that's been successful. Hmm. <laughs> so to kick it off, just do a little background history on the Academy Awards. The first ceremony was held in 1929 at the Hollywood Roosevelt Hotel on May 16th. Tickets for the private dinner cost $5. And the presentation ceremony hosted by Douglas Fairbanks. I don't know if any of our listening friends are old enough to know or are just into old school movies, but he was one of those what they I guess you'd call him an action hero if he was around now. He did like swashbuckler type movies back in the day. He hosted the event, which took 15 minutes. Woo! Nowadays, the ceremony takes roughly three and a half to four hours. Mm. Any hoot. The next year, 1930, the ceremony was then broadcast on radio and was first televised on TV in 1953. Popular legend has it that the name of the statue, the Oscar, originated from Academy librarian Margaret Herrett, who claimed the award statuette bore a striking resemblance to her uncle Oscar. In 1939, the Academy decided to officially embrace its nickname, and it's been used informally for several years. I find it interesting that they say informally because that's all anybody ever calls it, basically, is the Oscar. It's the yeah. Oscar. <laughs> yeah. It's the Oscar. So... Um, just a few tidbits on Oscar, Oscar ceremonies and events over the years. The first African-American to win an Academy Award was Hattie McDaniel. And she won for Best Supporting Actress for her role as Mammy. In the 1939, this can't be 1939, dates are wrong. Uh, in the Civil War epic, Gone with the Wind, excuse me for the, the misspeak on the year. Uh, but she won for her supporting role in that particular movie. Now, I do know, and don't ask me how I know this tidbit of information. This is probably why I, I probably need to end up on Jeopardy at some point. I remember reading somewhere years ago that in the early years of the awards ceremony, that the awards for supporting actor and actresses were smaller than the ones for best actor and actresses. And I'm not sure at what year that they were, you know, upgraded to mm -hmm. match the size of the best actor and actress. But that was the case with the in this particular year, at least that that particular figurine was smaller. But surprise, surprise, that particular year, things were still segregated. The hotel that they were having the awards ceremony at had a segregation policy. So film producer David O. Selznick reportedly had to call in favors just to have McDaniel allowed in the billing building. And despite her receiving the award, she had to sit in the back of the auditorium at a segregated table away from the rest of her co-stars. And she wow. was banned from attending the Atlanta, the Atlanta premiere of the movie because of segregation laws. Boom, boom. I'm, I'm shocked. You ought to be. <laughs> Just... It never ceases to amaze me the 
links people went in the past. And apparently some cartoonists will go today to be horrible to other humans. Truly. During the years between 1943 and 1945, there was a little thing going on called the Second World War. And up until that point, the Oscar statuette was made from gold-plated solid bronze. However, metal shortages during the war meant the awards had to be made from alternative materials. And so all awards handed out between 43 and 45 were made of painted plaster. And when the war was over, all recipients of plaster awards were invited to exchange them for metal ones. Hooray. In 1960. I'm curious, though, to one. I wonder how well those have held up. I wonder if any of them still exist. I have a feeling. No, I, I bet you everybody that that got one of those eventually traded it in. I'm pretty sure. Probably. I'm just curious if there's one out there. That's all. Anyway, sorry. That would, that would be interesting, though. But I, I bet you they probably traded it, man, because, you know. Yeah. Didn't mean to side quest you. No, no, no. No, no, no. It's an interesting question, though. Um, the ceremony in 1968 that was supposed to take place on the 8th of April was postponed to the 10th because of the recent assassination of Martin Luther King Jr., and his funeral was scheduled for the 9th of April. So they pushed the ceremony back to the 10th. And the 1981 ceremony was also postponed during an assassination attempt on President Ronald Reagan. Yes. Then we get 1973. I'm going to go in a little detail on this one because it's an interesting pit stop on the, the history of the awards. Marlon Brando wins Best Actor for his role as Vito Corleone. <laughs> I'm sorry. I had to say it like that because <laughs> I say it like that. Woo. Okay. He wins for his role as Vito Corleone in The Godfather, a hands down one of the best motion pictures ever made. I'm not biased. He refused to accept it. As a matter of fact, he didn't even attend the ceremony. So when he was announced as the winner, um, Instead, in his place came a Native American or indigenous activist slash actress, Sasheen Littlefeather. And she made a speech in his place to advise why he wasn't going to take this award. She says, hello, my name is Sasheen Littlefeather. I'm Apache and I am president of the National Native American Affirmative Image Committee. I'm representing Marlon Brando this evening. He has asked me to tell you that he very regretfully cannot accept this very generous award. And the reasons for this being are the treatment of American Indians today by the film industry and on television and movie reruns, and also with recent happenings at Wounded Knee. I beg at this time that I have not intruded upon this evening and that we will in the future our hearts and our understandings will be met with love and generosity. Thank you on behalf of Marlon Brando. Um, about that, mm. long before the slap, long before, uh, even though this was at a musical award, Kanye interrupting uh, Taylor Swift, this is also when John Wayne got got incredibly upset and I believe had to be held back because he was going to assault um, that lady that came to spoke speak for Marlon Brando. It's interesting you mentioned that because that is addressed in this particular article as well. It may be one of those cute little urban urban tales that mm-hmm. has been enhanced over the years. 
And apparently at the time he was terminally ill and recovering from major surgery. So the likelihood that he tried to storm the stage and had to be held back by six big dudes. It might be overstated. Just a little bit. Just a little bit. Right. And and I'm not here to defend John Wayne because. (laughs) John Wayne is very problematic. Incredibly. People do not realize that. Incredibly. But as things often are, the longer, the longer it's been since something happened, the more spectacular the story gets. So that might be where that comes from as far as how bad supposed that he behaved. But the fact was that when she made her speech, she was met with a lot of booze. Mm-hmm. And um, Clint Eastwood, who won the very next award, um, or sorry, he was presenting the Best Picture Award just after this, said, I don't know if I should present this award on behalf of all the cowboys shot in all the John Ford Westerns over the years. Clint Eastwood is also politically problematic. That's all I'll say. Mm-hmm. And it shames me that I do enjoy some of his movies. But yes, he's incredibly conservative. So there's that. But that is not, that's one of the bigger, mm-hmm. I guess, controversies in the history of the Ward show, notwithstanding last year that I refused to speak on. Um, <laughs> but that was a big deal back then. And it's going on 50 years, almost 50 years. In a couple of weeks uh, that this happened and it, it was, you know, it was known through Hollywood that Marlon Brandon was a difficult fella. Yes. So him, you know, asking that lady to go up there and do what she did. I don't know. I guess a lot of people considered it, you know, the bird, a figurative bird or a big old F.U. And even over the years, apparently her indigenous status was under scrutiny that she may not have necessarily been native hmm. and that that's kind of up in the air. So I, I just find it interesting that this is a big enough deal, even to this day that people still talk about it and pick it apart and try to figure out what exactly did all that mean? Cause it wasn't like Marlon Brandon was going to step in and explain himself in any depth. So right. another tidbit or factoid about the uh, Oscars was that in 1974, the very next year, Tatum O'Neill, becomes the youngest ever Oscar winner. And she was 10 years old and she won the best supporting, the best supporting actress award for her role in a little movie called paper moon that also starred her dad, the rather handsome Ryan O'Neill. On the other hand, Sir Anthony Hopkins is the oldest person to win the best actor award at age 83. He won for his role in the father that came out in 2020. Mm-hmm. Here's a nice, another little tidbit, and this, this is related to what we were just speaking on. How many, let me ask, I'm going to ask you a question. Okay. How many, how many times do you think it has been that two different actors have won the Oscar for playing the same fictional character in different movies? How many times do you think that's happened? Twice. You are so right. Really? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> the aforementioned Marlon Brando won for his role as Vito Corleone in The Godfather. Right. Robert Robert De Niro won Best Supporting for that same character, Vito Corleone, in The Godfather Part Two. Robert De Niro played a younger version of Vito. Okay. Quite a handsome man back in the day, I should say that. The other fictional character that was depicted by two different people is Batman's arch nemesis, the Joker. Heath Ledger 
won for mm-hmm. Best Supporting Actor when he portrayed him in The Dark Knight. Right. Joaquin Phoenix won for Best Actor when he portrayed him in, was that 2020, 2019's mm-hmm. Joker. Right. So, yes, up until this date, four men have won for portraying two fictional characters in two different movies. I find that very interesting. So That is. Now, Oscars being that what 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 they were, and, and uh, just to put some con- some more context to this, as we was as I mentioned earlier about Hattie McDaniel, even though mm-hmm. she was honored, she couldn't enjoy herself. She couldn't go to that that award ceremony, and she couldn't go to any celebrations because segregation was you know going on full steam, no stop. Right. And so, unfortunately, that legacy is kind of like tainted the history of the awards through the years. And back in 2015, I guess things kind of hit a, I guess one of those camel straw back things. That particular year, none of the best actor or actress or supporting actor, actress nominees or best director, none of the top awards were for people of color. Mm -hmm. So a a nice little hashtag popped up started making the rotations, Oscar's so white. And it was pressure from, you know, average folks and people in the industry saying, hey, you've got to make some effort to make sure that you recognize more people besides white guys, more women, more people of color. And the, and the, and the argument back to that was, well, the Academy only nominates good work. That implies that good work can only come from white men. They didn't... People don't do themselves favors when they try to make arguments like that. So since, right. <laughs> since, since then, the Academy has tried to make efforts to include people of color, more women into the Academy board itself and people that they nominate. So just recently, there was an article uh, that came out in Rolling Stone that they did a little exploration on the progress that the Academy has made. They found that the percentage of nominees among underrepresented racial or ethnic groups has jumped from 8% between 2008 and 2015 to 17% between 2016 and 2023. During the same 2008 to 2015 period, women comprised 21% of Oscar nominees, a number that has jumped to 27% over the last eight years. And that particular study, which examined 16 out of 19 Oscar categories, found that overall the percentage of underrepresented nominees more than doubled, with the biggest gains coming in the best adapted screenplay, director, supporting actor, documentary feature, and best actor categories. But the gains for best director and adapted screenplay categories, quote, are largely due to the substantial increase in underrepresented men than underrepresented women. Go figure. And not that that's a bad thing, because that 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 was the goal to push the Academy to do just that. But there's still, you know, according to this, they're still seeing some lack in representing women more equally across the board. Furthermore, the study noted that there's still no proportional representation between the percentage of underrepresented nominees in a given category with the roughly 40% of the U.S. population that identifies with an underrepresented racial ethnic group. So in other words, the proportion of nominees doesn't balance out the proportion of those same ethnic groups in the overall population. Right. 
the category that comes closest to the thre- that threshold is best original song with underrepresented nominees comprising 37% of that category. Hmm. But as this particular study notes, the figure for best song under what they call under indexes relative to the presence of underrepresented artists on the popular music charts. I don't know if that's gobbledygook about the popularity of the song or what have you, but that's what the study says. But that's interesting that the biggest gains were, were seen in that particular category having to do with music. Go figure. Right. Dang it. I was going to say go figure. <laughs> you go figured my go figured. But Women. no, that that makes sense if you think about it. Yeah, it does. Women of color represented represent just 2% of total nominees. 20% of all black nominees have been in their best original song category. Only eight women have been nominated for best director. Four of those nominations came after 2017 and only three women have won. And I should have actually checked this out when I was gathering my notes and I'm trying to think off the top of my head. One of them was Jane Campion for Power of the Dog. That was an excellent movie. Um, I can't think of her name. Um, it was the, the lady who directed The Hurt Locker. Yeah. And I can't think of who the other one was. Yeah, it's not coming back to me. Right yeah, I, yeah, I, it's like there. Yeah, it's right there. Like, I feel in like. In my brain. Mm-hmm. But um, that just kind of lets you know, in the history of the Academy Awards, eight women have been nominated. Four of them, half, came after 2017. And this was after the Oscars So White incident. And only three women have won. And those wins, obviously, well, I, I'm going to say at least two of those wins have come in the last four or five years. Yeah. So every little step that the Academy seems to take, then they just stall out. They're sort of like saying, hey, we gave you this. We're going to we gonna go back to doing what we want to. Eh. Oh, the third woman director was Chloe Zhao for Nomadland. Okay. And that was 2021. Okay. And Catherine Bigelow was the Hurt Locker. Yes. Yes. So um, this this ties in though, going back to when we did our um, episode on black exploitation films. Mm-hmm. When you have an issue finding funding to make your movie, but then when the funding you get, say, is a million dollars instead of twenty million dollars, so many compromises have to be made in the process of the filming that it creates like this loop, you know, how they said, well, you know, it's got to be a great thing, a a great performance. Well, a lot adds up to a performance other than, yes, you have to have good actors to do it. And good actors are good actors. But if you're a good actor and you're in a film that is having to cut corners and perhaps can't do 10 takes of a scene and can only do one take of a scene, it affects the overall quality. Not that the filmmaker's, can't make quality product but when you're limited by what you can do that has an effect which then feeds into this stupid circle so what we're getting at basically is it's a problem at the academy but it just underlies a bigger problem with hollywood you know what i'm saying that that well or highlights the bigger problem with hollywood yeah because the the so-called lack of quote, good films does 
stem from somewhere. And if you don't have the budget, then sometimes you can't pay the talent that you want to be in the movie. Like you said, you can't pay for set decoration or wardrobe or opportunities to take multiple takes. And it's funny that you say that about the multiple takes because I was just listening to my my favorite little movie podcast the other day and they did, um, you know, um, a recap and, you know, rewatch review of The Shining, Stanley Cooper. Right. That man was notorious for taking 30, 40, 50 takes regularly. Right driving his 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 movies over budget and over time and driving his actors nuts but everybody's like it's fine because he's a genius and he makes these amazing movies right he's an auteur oh yeah but he's basically driving people nuts same things that they say about um james cameron right he makes amazing movies so we'll tolerate being him being a, a putz and i find that interesting that so many people in in hollywood are willing to go out of their way to tolerate guys like these but you have perfectly reasonable filmmakers and creatives and all other backgrounds and ethnicities, and they can't get half the attention that these guys get. Because if right. you would give them a chance, you may get something approaching a Titanic or a Shining or some, some other movies that people consider iconic classics. But oftentimes they just don't have the opportunity to do them. Right. That, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. <laughs> it- yeah. You know, like if you go back and look at, uh, uh, for example, Spike Lee's Jungle Fever. Oh, yeah. Great movie, great performances all the way around. But who's to say that maybe if he could have afforded five or six more takes of each scene, maybe it could have been even better. And he was already at that time, if I'm remembering, like he had quite a few. He had at least six movies, five or six movies already under his belt. Right. Do, do the right thing was before this. So he was already there. He had he had push, but they were still the Academy was still overlooking him repeatedly for the work that he was. He he he's one of those up up there. He's one of those auteur directors. Right. And I guarantee you his budgets are still less than if the white dude made the exact same film. I have no doubt. But he manages to put out some of the most relevant and timely shit I have seen in the last 20, 25 years. There's no question. And and like do the right thing right there is an example. That's probably his probably his best known. That and Malcolm X, I want to say. And mm-hmm. it was it was a doggone shame that he didn't nominate for Malcolm X. That's a travesty. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to talk about that until I'm 87 years old. All right. That, mo- that movie was robbed. Yeah. Spike was robbed. Denzel was robbed. It should have happened. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. Anyway, it's just it's a vicious cycle of mm-hmm. this leads to this, but. It's just, it's really like a spirograph of doom. Just one circle leads into the other and it just never really unbreaks from this cycle. Mm-hmm. And so anyway. So here's an interesting little statistic. Three male filmmakers account for 17% of all Hispanic Latino Oscar winners. Just three is 17%. I'm not, I can't do the mathing, but that's significant. And that tells you how few Hispanic and Latino winners there have been. Those three filmmakers and listening friends, if I pronounce these wrong, please don't hurt me. Alejandro Inaritu, he won uh, Best Director for Birdman in 2014. Mm-hmm. Excellent movie. Mm-hmm. Al- Alfonso Curion, Roma, that won the Best Foreign Language Movie in 2018. And Guillermo del Toro. 
He's one of my favorites. He won for The Shape of Water in 2017. Yes. Del Toro is one of my favorites. The Shape of Water, not so much. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> I couldn't hang. I couldn't <laughs> hang with that movie all the way. <laughs> but it's telling that through those three men account for almost 20% of yeah. all the Latino and Hispanic winners. And 9% of all Asian Oscar nominees were nominated this year with most of them being on everything, everywhere, all at once. Right. Which is excellent, by the way. But that tells you a lot. Like, is this, is this their attempt this year to prove to everybody that we're still trying to be diverse? We're just, be, we're just being diverse in a different direction. Right. But how, but how is it that this is one of the few years that we've seen this many Asian actors and actresses nominated? They've been there all this time. So just now they decided, hey, we better do something. I don't, I don't know how to feel about that part. That and the fact that the only two Black nominees in the acting category were for Best Supporting, Angela Bassett, and Best Supporting Actor, um, Brian Tyree Henry. Neither one of them for Best Actor or Actress. And remember when we did our episode about Emmett Till? Yeah. And I was talking about the biopic. Yes. And I said, if they didn't nominate Danielle Deadweiler for her amazing portrayal of Mamie Till Mobley, I would scream. I screamed. How dare you? How dare they not nominate her or Viola Davis for Woman King? How dare they? You can't. um, And of course, I'm going to be biased, but you can't tell me if anybody who's ever seen those movies, they can't say that those women didn't earn those roles. They Mm -hmm. worked that. They left nothing on the floor. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it's like, um, it gets baffling the way the Academy wants to do things. On one hand, they look like they're being swayed by public opinion and the opinions of others in the industry. On the other hand, they're like, fuck all y'all, we're going to do what we want to. Like, they nominate some of the weirdest movies sometimes. Like, stuff nobody's ever heard of. Right. (laughs) (laughs) It's just weird. Now, I'm getting off my soapbox and I'm going back to my factoids. And because I'm a horror movie aficionado, I had to know how many horror movies have ever been nominated for Best Picture. Guess how many? Oh. Twelve? Six. And I questioned some of these because horror movie has a very, to me, narrow definition. Mm -hmm. So the the first one was The Exorcist, the 1974 Oscar. That tracks? Jaws. Jaws was nominated for 1976 awards. Tracks. Silence of the Lambs, 1991. And so far, that is the only one to win. And this is where my concern comes in. I don't necessarily qualify this as a horror movie. Some people do. That's more psychological thriller in my mind. Mm-hmm. And I think maybe the only, people, the only reason people categorize it as horror because of the, the serial killer aspect. But it's, yeah. yeah, it is more psychological horror than anything. I mean, psychological thriller, c- crime thriller, because it's procedural, because you're watching them work through evidence trying to track this guy down. Right. So, but that's what they said it was, and it won, and it deserved it. It's a fantastic movie. In 1999, The Sixth Sense was nominated. Didn't win, of course. Once again, I still kind of think that's more psychological thriller. No, I call that horror. It's ghosts. So- 
Well, yeah, I guess that's true. And even, I mean, even though you didn't necessarily have like gore and blood and guts, there was more like emotional bent to it. Right. It, it had this supernatural aspect. So I would put it in there. I would say that's, it's mild horror. Yeah, we'll go with mild. Mild horror. Like mild salsa. 2010, Black Swan gets nominated. The movie didn't win, but Natalie Portman did win Best Actress, and she was absolutely outstanding. I've only seen it once, and that's all. Oh. I need to see it. <laughs> I had the chills after that. Both Natalie Portman and um, Really Brain, you know, from that 70s show who's married to What's-His-Face now. The other star oh, Mila- that was in Black Swan. Oh, Mila Kunis. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> um, I needed it, so I couldn't recall that info. Both of them put their body through horror just Thank to film you. that movie. They said they, they, they lost weight. Nally was, was doing like all day dance practices for months. It was ridiculous. Yeah. But when I tell you, I mean, both of them did really good. But when I tell you Natalie had that whole falling to psychological pieces down pat. Like, Mm -hmm. I was scared for her at the end. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. You you could say what you want to about the Star Wars Wars prequels. Natalie Portman at least got to eat a sandwich when she was filming those movies. Basically. And I adore Natalie Portman. She's always been one of my favorites. And then the last last one so far considered horror that was nominated was 2017, Get Out. I think it should have won because that's definitely psychological horror. It's literally Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Mm-hmm. So, and I'm going to remind you again that I need you to, to watch that movie. Uh, um, so being the person that I am, I'm like, I looked up horror movies. How many times have so-called action movies been nominated? And again, the definition of action movies is apparently really loose. Go figure. But a sampling of nominees over the years includes Star Wars, Raiders of the Lost Ark, The Fugitive. That should have won. That's yeah. a hell of a movie. Braveheart, which did win in 1995, utterly inaccurate. But who cares? <laughs> the only the only correct things in Braveheart <laughs> are that there was a dude named William Wallace. Yes, and he lived. <laughs> and that there was that there was Edward the Longshanks was uh, the king of England, mm-hmm. and Robert the Bruce did go on to become a king. Mm-hmm. But here's the thing, non-Scottish history people. William Wallace was not known as Braveheart. Mm-hmm. Robert the Bruce was known as Braveheart. They mm-hmm. literally made him a partial bad guy and stole his name mm-hmm. for that movie. Mm-hmm. The Battle of Stirling Bridge, as depicted in that movie, did not take place at a bridge. Mm-hmm. It wasn't called the Battle of Stirling Bridge because they were playing the card game bridge. It was at a bridge. <laughs> mm-hmm. Anyway, I digress. No, it's fair, and 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 just and just talking about that, it reminds me of how many movies there are out there that are uh, inspired or based or loosely based on historical figures or events. Every single one of them has some measure of inaccuracy because it's Hollywood, right? And it's just it's just a matter of degrees. How bad is the inaccuracies? I mean, me personally, you know, some years later after I had first seen that movie, I read up about everything that was wrong with it. And I'm like, it's okay, though. <laughs> like the most, right. one, the most blatant one to me was they're wearing kilts 
They didn't wear kilts then. No, they did not. Kilts <laughs> did not come around until it was roughly the late 1600s. <laughs> yeah, but it didn't matter. It was Mel Gibson, who I was still enamored of at the time. Not not so much lately. And I like a good action movie. What can I do? Right. Um, Saving Private Ryan won 1998. Gladiator won in 2000, but also nominated was Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. Fantastic movie. The next one I always found interesting, the Lord of the Rings trilogy. The Academy literally waited until all three movies came out and then said, here, here's all the awards. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, yeah, that's true. They did. So, it was hilarious to me. I was like, "Where?" but they didn't get any nominations in the acting categories. That's the tricky part. Right. It was, it was like costume design and um, sound effects and visual effects, every other technical award, but acting. It was crazy. And then Best Picture, and was it Best, did Peter Jackson get Best Director? I mean, get nominated? I don't remember. I don't remember if he did or not. I know that, yeah, Return of the King, maybe it did get Best Picture that year. I, I don't know. Return of the King did. Yeah. But they, like I said, they didn't bother nominating any of those movies until Return of the King came out. And then that movie alone got all the awards. Like, yeah. here, we're going to make we're gonna make up for all, you know, the other two that we didn't pay attention to. <laughs> right. <laughs> um. In 2009, we had a good um, selection. And again, I wouldn't necessarily consider all of these action, but some of them were really good. One of my top 20 favorites in Glorious Bastards, Avatar, District 9, and The Hurt Locker were all nominated in on that year. And The Hurt Locker won that we just mentioned earlier, directed yes. by Catherine Bigelow. Um, another one of my top 20 favorites, Django Unchained, was nominated in 2012. And another one of my top 20 favorites, this tells you a lot about me, Mad Max Fury Road was nominated in 2015, and that was a long shot, but yeah. it was fun that it was nominated. So, yeah, yeah, and um, yeah. Well, let, let me ask you this: Yeah, what is your favorite movie to have won Best Picture? It's funny you should ask. I had several because they're they're different kinds of movies, right? Um, Which is fair. 2014, Twelve Years a Slave won absolutely heartbreaking movie it's not for the faint of heart but you would tell edgy of four knocks it out of the park in the lead role and it's based on a true story um and i read the book and the movie pretty much follows it faithfully it's it's an amazing amazing movie and it's it's just there's so many moments like steve mcqueen the director he had a way of like framing certain shots like wide so you could see you know the subject in the foreground and then you would see like the background like a tree or a field or something he would hold these shots and he would make you sit there with whatever was going on and it just it was some visceral shit it's a beautifully done movie and it's funny funnily enough it's one of my favorites that have ever won Hmm. the next year birdman won in 2015 and i actually dragged my mom and my daughter to the theater to see this i didn't know what it was about i just knew it was michael keaton and I'm a fan. Let's go see right. Birdman. So I was surprised that it won. So um, 2016 Spotlight won. Um, I mean, are you familiar with that? Have you seen it? I I don't know. <laughs> it was um, based on when the Boston Globe broke open the story about child oh, the, sexual abuse the, in the with the Church. priest. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was amazing. Yeah, Ooh. yeah, um, I, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, <laughs> 2017 uh, Moonlight won, and that was the year of the mix-up. 
because they inadvertently declared La La Land the winner of Best Picture and then came back and said, oops. Right. Like, <laughs> right, right. Another beautifully done movie. And it, seeing that kind of gave me hope that we would get to see more movies like that, like very quiet coming of age character driven dramas. It's a beautiful movie. Right. And then my most favorite winner, 2020 Parasite, uh, the Korean, how do you describe it? Drama, thriller, psychological, <laughs> psychological right. study. It's everything. And it's a fabulous movie. Fabulous movie. Have you seen it? No, I have not. Put that on but the list. it sounds like I need to. Put that on the list. Yeah. Mm. To be fair, I have been boycotting the Oscars mm-hmm. ever since they failed to nominate Mr. Mom <laughs> from, 19, from the 1980s with Michael Keaton. And I have just been pissed off ever since then. And I have boycotted I, I, them. I understand because Mr. Mom, that, w- that was a movie. That was ahead of its time, I might say. And I've, I've been a Michael Keaton fan from way back. So, I mean, I, I was one, I'm one of the people that's watched the, the Car Factory movie. Gung-ho. I'm one of the people that watched Gung-ho at least three times. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm a fan. I'm yeah. A fan. yeah I, uh, I watched Gung-ho a couple times when it was the Saturday matinee at the Tinker Air Force Base movie theater. <laughs> There's actually probably a solid shot that, that we watched that movie together Possibly. <laughs> at that same theater. <laughs> I don't I don't know if I saw it at the theater, to be honest with you. I just I just know I've seen I, most recently. I watched it last year. I kid you not. That and yeah. Mr. Mom, because I had I was having a Michael Keaton day. So I'm like, yeah. let me get into this. And I forget how absolutely charismatic he is. So do you have any favorites that had won Best Picture? I mean, as far as you know. I don't know. I have a hard time because honestly, somewhere around 2005 ish, I just quit watching the Academy Awards because I just, it, it's really all award ceremonies. I just don't care enough. Um, yeah. But if I had to say, um, I do love me some Jaws. Mm, okay. Like, okay one of my all-time favorite movies Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. i saw it as a kid it didn't well this is weird but (laughs) instead of being scared of sharks i found them quite fascinating and then i just started checking out all the books that i could on sharks and watching all the documentaries and shark week and all that so it started like a lifelong love of sharks Mm. for me where i got scared can't believe i'm gonna say this oh goody the original cast of Saturday Night Live after Jaws used to have a skit where there would be a knock on the door and it was a land shark and then they'd open the door and the land shark would eat them. I remember this. So they'd knock and they'd be like, who is it? And they'd be like, pizza. Are you sure it's not? I've heard. It. No, no, I'm, I'm not. And then they'd open the door and they'd be like, shark, and then they'd eat them. Because whoever was in the shark head, like talked in a real low mumble. Yeah. <laughs> so however old me was when that was going on, you know, what, six, seven years old? Uh-huh. I remember seeing Jaws and thinking, sharks are terrifying, but you're safe if you don't go in the water. But if there are land sharks, you are just completely hosed because they can attack you at any time. <laughs> right? Yeah. And especially if they can deliver pizza to trick you into opening the door. So uh, like they would mumble to make you be like, who is it? Pizza. Pizza. Mailman. Mailman. 
The character first appeared on SNL in the fall of 1975, and it was a direct response to the release of Jaws. Yeah, and <laughs> you know there would just be like a couple times on vacation in the summer, whatever it was, and it, that skit would come on, and that just terrified me because I'm like, you can't escape a land shark. You can't. Little did you know, there's no such a thing, but it didn't matter. Right. It didn't matter then. <laughs> Okay. I was like five people. <laughs> okay, here's here's uh since we're sharing, here's my here's my story about young movie watching. I don't remember what year. Is Twilight Zone the movie? Whatever year that came what, out. Was that 84? Something, something-ish. And I mean, I've been a Twilight Zone fan forever. And I think I, I'm pretty sure we went to the movies to see this. Um and now that's a movie that we could go on about because it's an interesting oh. it's an interesting movie, but it has a horrible backstory to it. That that's we could do an entire episode on just the filming of that movie. Yeah. But it's an interesting movie. Outside of that, I know it's that's saying a lot. Outside of that, it's an interesting movie. And um the very last segment in the movie was um was it Terror at thirty thousand feet? I think that's what it's called. Yeah. Horror at 30,000 feet, something. The original Twilight Zone show, black and white. Uh, that was uh, Shatner, wasn't it? William Shatner. And in the movie, it was John Lithgow. And so like, they updated it naturally from like, you know, the 50s up until the early 80s. But the premise remains the same. Um, a guy's on a plane. Um, and in, in, the, in the movie version, he's coming home from the clinic because he's had some, nerve, some nervous anxiety issues. And he sees something on the wing. Come to find out a gremlin has come out of wherever gremlins come from and has decided to sabotage the plane. So the gremlin's eaten up the engine and no one believes his man when he says there's something on the wing. And so after I saw that movie, I was afraid to put my foot out from under the covers of my bed because the gremlin was going to snatch me and drag me underneath. I mean, <laughs> I, I have no room to talk. That's what I'm saying. We're sharing that I shared too. Okay. Now we are equally shamed. So having said that, friends, we're going to, we're going to roll right into the wrapping of this little present. We are glad you joined us. That we are. That we are. As we appreciate always, it. As always, as always. Um, as a reminder, please check out Jack's solo podcast, Music of ADD Mind. He's got some good stuff going on over there. He always has. But if it's not on your list, shame on you. Add it. You can support both of these podcasts because they are productions of hyper-focus podcasts. You can uh, support both of them by going to buymeacoffee.com and looking up hyper-focus pods. We hope that you care enough to send the very best one time or reoccurring. We would appreciate it. But more than anything, we appreciate you tearing in. And that's what we got for you. Yep. If you could uh, please also like, share, rate, leave a review on whatever podcasting platform you're on. That helps us in the algorithm. Yep. So thanks. Yep. Until Bye. next week, folks. As always, thank you for listening to our podcast. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a review, hit that like button, and subscribe on your preferred podcast platform. Your feedback is valuable, and we welcome it. If you would like to contact, connect with, or just want to see what we talk about between episodes, you can find us on Facebook, 
under our podcast name on Instagram at K-A-Y-A-N-D-J-A-Y-S-T-W, our website, podpage.com slash Kenyatta-Jack-Save-The-World, or email at k.j.savetheworld at gmail.com. If you would like to learn about and contribute to our chosen charities, you can do so at Service Dog Project at servicedogproject.org and Black Women's Health Initiative at bwhi.org. Kenyatta and Jack Save the World is a product of Hyper Focus Podcasts.